Let me stand in Christ alone. That comes right from our passage today in Romans, Romans 9 through t- uh, first few verses of chapter 10, as Pastor Brian indicated. Uh, ordinarily, the chapter divisions mark the actual progressions uh, throughout the New Testament, but the divisions of chapters are not inspired. Paul did not mark a chapter 10 to begin where it does in our Bibles. That's just for our uh, ease of reference, finding the passage and so forth. But this is one of the times where the individual who assigned those chapter divisions didn't quite catch the, the, the movement of the text. So we are not bound by the chapter division, but by the uh, what Paul actually says. So we're going to consider these eight verses together. Recently, one of our members uh, had an interesting conversation at a local restaurant. Observing that the waiter sported several tattoos various obvious places, and that they all represented symbols of Christianity. Uh, He decided to ask about uh, those symbols. What's the significance of those? And the waiter seemed uh, all too happy to explain each one. Here's here's the cross, and here's what that means, and so forth. And, And so the next question was, well, do you know that when you die, that you'll go to heaven? And the immediate reply was, uh, oh, yes, uh, followed by a list of his various good deeds, uh, the things he tries to do regularly. He was quite confident in his uh, uh, future destiny, and he's not alone in that. No doubt you've had the experience of talking to an unsaved person, looking for an an opening to present the gospel, and to realize that the individual doesn't sense any need. He, He thinks he's all set. He's good enough. Well, People do suppose that their personal efforts to do good will earn favor with God. I'm trying hard, and it ought to be good enough, Uh, good enough for God. After all, isn't he a loving God? But see, so many seem not to have a a very accurate sense of their own sinfulness, as well as their inability to pay for their sin. What are they going to do about that? Oh, I think I can cover that with my good deeds. In another sense, though, even God's people are guilty of assuming too much personal credit. This can range from thinking that, well, uh, God chose me and he didn't choose some other person, probably because he saw that I would respond better to his offer of grace, probably because he saw there was some Something a little bit better here. Uh, that's taking too much credit. Uh, or it can also go to just uh, 
thinking that following a set of rules will somehow add to my status in uh, relationship to God, to, to what Christ has done, I can add to that by just uh, doing what, uh, what I'm supposed to do. Well, today's passage, bridging this chapter division, has the solution that can bring us all, unsaved and believers alike, can bring us all into a right relationship with God based on right thinking about that relationship. The emphasis in this passage, the truth undergirding these verses, is that the Lord offers the gift of his righteousness. He does so, of course, not to people who deserve it, especially not people who think they deserve it. He offers it to everybody. And your decision, whether you have never trusted Christ as your Savior before, or you have already the decision before you based on the offer of righteousness that God gives. So it's either justification or sanctification. The right response is, I am going to trust Christ. I decide to trust him for that righteousness. Let's see how Paul advances uh, that theme uh, throughout these verses. First of all, to end chapter 9, he says, The Lord offers his righteousness by faith alone. Works are not going to get there. Salvation by faith is the decision to choose God's gift. I accept it. I take that offer. I trust that Savior. Paul begins with a question, a a question designed to lead us to the right conclusion based on what we've been considering in the previous verses uh, for us in previous weeks. He says, what shall we say then? What's the right conclusion to this? And Paul has a two-part conclusion. Two parts focus, first of all, in verse 30, on Gentiles. That's probably representing most of us here today. Most of us in the category, if there are only two choices, Jewish or Gentile, most of us here today are Gentile. In fact, that's the very uh, issue that has prompted all of chapter 9 so far, and will continue to dominate Paul's thinking through chapter 10 and through chapter 11. Why aren't there more Jewish people in the church? Why isn't it mostly Jewish people and some Gentiles? Not that any of us would wish to change the proportion, but we'd love to see a whole bunch of Jewish people Trusting Christ, serving him. Why isn't that true? Especially since the gospel was originally designed for them. We Gentiles are kind of add-ins and are so grateful to have that position. Well, verse 30, it's because trust in God abandons 
personal effort. And Gentiles are more prone to doing that. Not, again, because of the anything inherently good in them, but that's the group of people that is responding to the gospel by saying, I need that. I can't earn that on my own. So he says that Gentiles, those who have trusted Christ, who did not pursue righteousness, pursuing it as something that they can attain by self-effort. That's not what they've tried to do, but they are the ones that have attained it. The ones that aren't trying are the ones that get it. How can that be? It's all part of the nature of a gift that God gives. He gives righteousness to those who recognize they can't earn it. And the reality is that uh, all throughout the world, the vast majority of those who have done that, accepted God's gift, well, they're Gentiles. They have arrived at the humble admission that I can't pay for sin. I can't earn status with God. So trust in God, first of all, abandons that personal effort, and then further depends on his provision. Verse 30 concludes, uh, that is, this is a righteousness that is by faith. That's the point. He offers righteousness by faith alone. There are no exceptions to that. There never have been any exceptions to that. In the history of the world, Old Testament era, New Testament, salvation has always been by faith alone. A right standing with God is available to every believer, Jew or Gentile. And we thank God there are Jewish people that have trusted Christ. Paul is personally thankful for that and is going to express that in, uh, in, in words. This forgiveness of sin God offers in one way only. Salvation by faith chooses that way. And it's mostly Gentiles that are doing that. On the other hand, salvation by works ignores God's gift. Aware of it, seeing it, passes it up. No thank you. And the reality is there are few in the church that are Jewish because they are still striving for salvation by works. And it's not just Jewish people. Uh, Even though the vast proportion of people in the church are Gentile, the vast proportion of Gentile population in the world are in the same category as the Jews. They've also chosen to ignore God's gift and to trust in their own works. Well, Paul has uh, some realities to lay before us in that direction. The first is, in verse 31, that trust in self is futile. It is not going to work. He says, but that Israel, 
who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness. They had a law, they had God's law, and they pursued obedience to that law, thinking that's how we're going to arrive at God's righteousness. They pursued it with vigor, but they did not succeed in reaching that law because trust in self is futile. They've had a wrong focus all these centuries, and that has uh, led then to a failed attempt, a failed attempt to obey. Now, 32 begins by asking another question. Why is it that Israel has failed? Why is it that works, personal effort, does not make it all the way? Why is it that so many people today are still unsaved? Now, based on what we have seen in chapter 9 so far, where there has been a, a singular emphasis, based on that, we would expect Paul to answer, well, I know why unsaved people are still trusting their own works. It's because God didn't choose them, right? Well, in fact, that is the answer of chapter 9 to this point. Paul has been emphasizing the sovereignty of God and his sovereignty even in salvation. He chooses who to save. It's a sovereign choice. It's his choice, and it's not based on anything he can see in us. We have nothing to offer. There's nothing good in any. But now, so we're expecting, based on chapter 9 to this point, that that's the answer he's going to give here. But it's not. Because from this point on, Paul is going to emphasize the other aspect of salvation, the other side of this, there's a balance that Scripture has. And in this balance, what he's about to say now gets a lot more emphasis. The vast majority of references to how salvation works in the New Testament and through the rest of the book of Romans is this other side of it, which is, again, to get back to verse uh, 32, why is it that unsaved people are still striving for salvation by works, even though it's futile? It's because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. It's because they made the wrong choice. Now Paul's answer to why is because of them. They are responsible. People could choose to trust Christ. And those that are currently unsaved, it's because so far they have chosen not to do that. We're going to see Paul say that a few different ways as well uh, in these coming verses and uh, even in the coming uh, weeks that we continue in Romans. Trust in self, therefore, is futile. Your works are not going to get there. You've made the wrong choice. Choosing works instead of choosing to trust Christ, that's why you're unsaved. There's the answer. Trust in self, though, is also fatal. 
To continue in verse 32, Paul says they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Stumbled over the stumbling stone. Let's understand, first of all, that the stumbling here isn't the kind of stumble where you, where you get tripped up and you almost lose your balance. It's not even the kind of stumbling where you trip and you actually fall and skin your, your elbow or maybe even break an arm or break a leg. This is not the inconvenience of a temporary stumble. This is a final stumble. This is a fatal stumble. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Well, what stone is that? To identify that, Paul goes to the book of Isaiah. He has two different passages in Isaiah that he combines in one quotation. Uh, And the first one, which is from Isaiah 8.14, he presents here, the, that this rock breaks in pieces. This is that fatal rock. A rock that if somebody encounters and trips over, that they are done. They don't get up to run any further. As he says in this quotation, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That offense there is that fatal fall. But then he goes on to quote from Isaiah 28, 16. And here's where we find out, because we might be wondering at this point, why would God do that? Why would God place a stone right there in the way, and it's going to cause people to stumble over it? Well, in fact, that is not God's purpose. That is the result of a wrong response to that stone. God's purpose, he expresses in this other quotation from Isaiah, where Paul gives just a portion of that in verse 33. He says, and whoever believes in him, all right, now we find out that this rock, this stone, is representing a person. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse 28, uh, chapter 28, verse 16 of Isaiah says it this way. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation, whoever believes will not be in haste. The idea there is not be in haste to find your own way, to gain your own access to heaven, because you will have found it in this rock. See, God designed this rock. God sent the person this rock represents in order to provide a foundation for life. A foundation that you can build your life on. A foundation you can stand upon. You try to jump over this rock. You try to avoid this rock. You try to go around it. 
All such efforts result in the stumbling. It is only the decision that I'm going to stand on this rock. I choose this rock. That's salvation by faith. In fact, throughout these first four verses, Paul seems to be using the imagery of a race. Not of a race of a a paved, smooth track, but more of like a cross-country going through paths and, and so forth where, where there are obstacles. And in this path, we have, some, we have runners that are pursuing, that are striving for that, that finish line, and they're striving to get around one particular stone while others... Look at that stone and say, that is exactly where I want to be. That rock is Christ, veiled here in this imagery. He is God's promised Messiah. That's the choice God urges everyone to make. Choose this rock. Build your life on this rock. This rock is not one to try to avoid. Whether you, therefore, stumble or stand in your relationship with God, it's up to you. There's a choice available to you. Trust Christ. Choose him. Build your life on him. Let him be your sure foundation. And your relationship with God will be eternal. That's God's promise. Now, Paul has referred then to this object of faith uh, using the imagery of a rock, but now he gets more explicit because in the first four verses of chapter 10, His message here is that the Lord offers his righteousness in Christ alone, by faith alone, but it is in Christ, faith with Christ as the object. And as such, in verses 1 through 3, Christ is the answer of God's word. He's the message of God's word. All throughout Scripture, whether he states explicitly the name of Jesus Christ or not. All throughout Scripture, God has designated his Son as the theme of every passage. He is the answer to every problem. He is the rock that every life requires. None other than Christ. Paul begins... Verse 1, with the reference to brothers, and that that just kind of warms up this, his appeal here and and the truth he's proclaiming. He says, I'm talking to you, uh, and and you are important. Christ, then, as the answer answer of God's word, it's the answer God's word presents consistently, and that is why the lost must trust Christ. There's passion in what Paul says in verse 1. 
He expresses my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Now, he's still talking about the Jewish people, about Israel. But for Paul, that's not just a group of people. That's, that's his family. The, those, those are the people he, has, he grew up with. They're important to him. And it grieves him that they are not yet saved. Now, again, in light of what we've seen already throughout chapter 9, the emphasis of God's sovereign choice in salvation, uh, we might expect Paul to say, well, what can we do about it? There's nothing we can do. God's already decided. But Paul says, no, I pray. I pray for those that aren't saved. And Paul has no concern here about trying to figure out whether this particular person, currently unsaved, I wonder if they're part of God's choice. There are some in our day who agonize over that and even conclude, and this is an extreme form, but there are some who would say, based on God's sovereign choice, that I can't even offer the gospel to an unsaved person because I don't know that that person is chosen. God's word has no such concern. Paul has no such concern. Offer it to everybody. And it's not a false offer because anybody who chooses Christ will be saved. That and is the emphasis of Scripture that that's the deciding factor. The emphasis in Scripture is consistently on human responsibility. We need to know that God is sovereign and that God's choice is sovereign. But there's a balance here, and the right balance for God's people is to believe them both. We struggle with that. We all struggle with, with, uh, with, the, with the logic behind that. How can God choose and how can people choose? One of them must be subservient to the other. The answer of Scripture is essentially, that's not for you to be concerned about. You believe chapter 9 of Romans, God chooses. And then believe chapter 10 and a lot of other places, people choose. How those two choices always, always, always agree, we don't know. But we believe because God tells us both. And he also makes it clear that uh, our emphasis needs to be to give the gospel to all who will give us a hearing and offer it freely to all and everybody who says, yes, I choose Christ, will be saved. So the lost must trust Christ. Unbelief in other people, especially in family members, as is Paul's concern here. That's a a great burden. And many carry that burden. You have unsaved family members and you pray for them. 
Paul says, don't you give up. There's still hope. Are they still breathing? They can still trust Christ. Paul's personal passion he expressed in a continual petition, pleading with God to work in their hearts. In verses 2 and 3, Paul says, The lost then must simply choose Christ. He says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, and speaking of Jewish people in particular, but lost people in general have this zeal. Uh, Do you know if you're going to heaven? Oh, yeah. Well, how do you know? Well, I, I do all these good things. And we always have a sense that they are claiming way too much. Their, their good things aren't all that uh, significant. But they've convinced themselves, and they think that whatever level of zeal they have ought to be enough. Paul says they have a zeal. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Not according to truth. It's not the way salvation works. They are continuing to to strive, even though God's word says over and over, it won't work. And yet, there they are, still striving. It's not according to the truth that God's word says we need to know. For being ignorant... Verse 3, being ignorant of the righteousness of God, how to get it by trusting Christ, and seeking to establish their own. And that's human pride. I can do this. I don't need your help. I don't need God's help. Seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. The ignorance Paul is describing here, then, is a willful ignorance. It's a stubborn ignorance. It it doesn't mean they've never heard. It means they've refused to believe it. The the, The gospel itself reveals God's righteousness, how he justifies this willful ignorance of trusting self, is in fact a rejection of Christ. The point is, they've decided. They've chosen. And they are responsible for that choice. And it is because of their choice that they have no relationship with God. People here, you see, bear the full responsibility. That leads to one of the key statements in all of Paul's writings. Verse 4. Paul explains here that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the climax of God's plan. He is the end of the law in a very special sense. You see, all along, the law was designed to direct people to Christ. 
It held out this, this possibility of being right with God by obeying everything that God's Word says. But that standard was absolute. You have to obey everything God says all the time. No exception. Your entire life. Going back and looking ahead. The whole thing must be complete obedience to God. God's word, God's law then, is written in such a way that anyone who sees that will immediately say, I missed it. I messed up already. I can't do it that way. Is there any other way? And that's where the law has always pointed ahead to Christ. That's the way. It is through Christ alone. The the law directs people to Christ, exposing the need for a Savior. And in that sense, Paul can say, Christ is the end. He's the goal. If Paul still has the uh, uh, imagery of a race in mind, He's saying that Christ is the finish line. He he is where the law has been heading all along. He is the goal of it all. The goal to attain what? To attain righteousness from God. Christ is the end, the goal of the law for righteousness to everyone who not behaves, but everyone who believes, who chooses to trust him. That means that's how salvation worked in the Old Testament era. The law pointed to Christ, God's plan for the Jewish people, was that they would see that that's the case. I can't do this. I can't obey the law. But Christ can. God promised to send a Savior, and Old Testament believers said, I believe it, and I trust that future Savior. And what did they get? The righteousness of God. From our standpoint, we look back now some 2,000 years, and the Bible says God sent his Son in fulfillment of all his promises, and he says, he tells us in his word, that if we will trust him and what he did on the cross, that we will get what? The righteousness of God. In each era, it has always been by faith. And faith is what God requires today. God offers his righteousness by faith alone, and he does so in Christ alone. Trust him, then, is the message of all of God's word. Stop trusting yourself. Trust him. Now, that conversation with the waiter uh, then 
took a sudden, surprising turn. After rehearsing his personal qualifications for heaven, he unexpectedly seemed to lose his sense of confidence. Maybe uh, his, uh, his list of uh, good deeds didn't seem so impressive after all. Maybe just speaking them out loud made him seem a little paltry. But evidently, the uh, Holy Spirit was at work, and he suddenly seemed to wonder, have I actually done enough? Is this going to work? And, and even expressed it in a question, is it possible to know that you're going to heaven? And when he left work that, uh, that evening, he went home with a clear gospel track in his pocket and a plan for continuing this important conversation. And may God give us multiple hundreds and hundreds of such opportunities to tell unsaved people, you can know. Just trust Christ. But this works for God's people as well, because we are in the position every new day, every approaching week, of an opportunity for the righteousness of God at work and in display in how I live and the the choices that we make. Scripture calls that the process of sanctification, personal growth, becoming more like Christ. How are you going to get there this week? How are you going to make progress? Well, I'll just have to try harder. Oh, is, is that how it works? Or do you need Christ for that as well? Even that practical aspect of righteousness only comes if you decide to trust Christ. Lord, I need your help this week. I'm going to face temptations. There will be temptation to sin, There will be temptation to discouragement. There will be reasons to fear. There will be experiences of loss. Are those experiences going to draw me away from the Lord and become less like him, or are they going to draw me to the Lord and become more like him? You see, the choice there is yours. This passage says, choose to depend on Christ. That begins with asking for his help. Acknowledging before the Lord, I can't do this. Would you help me? Let's bow for prayer with an eagerness to utter those words to Christ yourself right now. Father, we thank you for sending your Son. Thank you that he is the rock that that forms the foundation for life, life in this world and life in the next. 
Thank you, Father, for accepting faith and granting us faith in Christ as the basis for granting us your righteousness. Father, we pray that you would increase our burden for the lost and our boldness in presenting the truth they need to hear. Pray that you would also increase our sense of dependency upon Christ. Every day we live, every new encounter, every new challenge, help us to depend on him. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.